Andy, you okay? Yeah, sure, I'm, I'm fine. It's good we had this talk. Yeah. Before things went too far, you know? Got too serious. Is it someone else? No, it's just you. People are always putting New Jersey down, but that's just because they don't get it. I'm living in a state of irony. How's it going? She only knew how I felt, but she doesn't even know I exist. I bore people. Who is that boring person, they think? I've never before met anyone so boring. But I Sometimes I wonder if any of your patients can talk to you. I should tape something for you. Oh, Bill, would you? Would you really? So I could listen to? No. You want a divorce? Did I use the word divorce? You said that you didn't. Did I use the word divorce? Divorce was the best thing that ever happened to me. Really. Well, hello, bud. How are you? I am fine. How are you? Do you like men? It's not so simple. Are you lesbian? No. It's all right. I like lesbian. I'm a passionate woman. Yeah. But I hate sex. We who have everything will joy. And what about our music career? I don't know, but don't hold your breath. I know that I don't dare to end my search for happiness. Happiness, what are you? I haven't got a clue. Happiness, why do you have to stay so far away from me? I'm not laughing at you. What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. It's been a couple weeks since uh, since we had a fresh single drop. Uh, big podcast trying to take down Hit Factory. They gave me COVID. Uh, they Carly barely got out unscathed. She's okay. Carly, you're feeling okay? I'm as okay as I can be. <laughs> but physically, healthily feeling sure. uncoveted? Sure, yeah. All right. Good. We'll see. I'm glad to hear that. If you can hear it in my voice a little bit, that's what that is. I've been spending the last week uh, isolated, recovering, uh, but ready to get back on the ones and twos and, and feeling, feeling feeling healthy enough to pod. But if I if I say anything on this episode that sounds contentious, that you disagree with, that just sounds nonsensical, it's just COVID brain. Um, it's beyond reproach. You can't blame me for anything. That's a very uh, good defense for whatever you might say about this movie, especially exactly right. on this episode. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're joined today by two wonderful guests uh, from the 30 Years Later podcast. Ricky Camilleri and Chris Chafin are here. How's it going, fellas? Hello. Great. Howdy. Great. Good stuff. Uh, great stuff, I would say. Good yeah, stuff. See, he's, the best. He's... The best stuff. The best stuff. We have the best stuff. We've brought the best stuff here, and we brought a great film to talk about today. Uh, one that that Ricky was uh, 
very keen on and said that we we just had to see <laughs> i i had never seen it before i know carly had never seen it before and really? for those listening today uh it's it's hard to see it's hard to to get a hold of uh except in like a physical media form or uh through other uh semi legal channels but the film is uh mr todd salon's 1998 film happiness and uh, before we go too far into it, I do want to hear from our guests today. I want to hear from you, especially Ricky, uh, why you were so adamant to talk about happiness, what Todd Salons means to you and and why this film is important. Um, so uh, I'll, it's hard to say these things without getting like into the conversation about the movie already, but I'll say that uh, the pitch from you was like, you know, Chris and I are stuck talking about this movies that came out in the same year. And you were like, well, choose something from later in the decade that you really like. And I wanted to choose something that to me felt very particularly nineties. Like it couldn't come out of any other decade, Hmm. but the nineties. And so that immediately to me was happiness. And then at the same time, happiness, uh, as soon as I said, it felt very relevant to certain um, conversations that are being had in this current political climate. Uh, and it also is a movie that I return to, I would never say regularly. It's been probably 10 years since I've seen the movie, but it's definitely every since college or high school, it's every, every few years or five or 10 years, I, I return to the movie because it, all of his films, but, uh, linger with me. I do think this and is his masterpiece. My favorite is life during wartime, the sequel to this one, but, um, it provokes conversation. It provokes a lot of conversation about exploitation, about compassion. Um, and so I thought it would be um, fun to talk about. And then as soon as someone says, I haven't seen it, it's like <laughs> fucking bingo. Like we got it. Yeah. yeah like, I, you know. I got to say, Aaron, when you said something about something trying to destroy the podcast, I was like, Oh, he's talking about Ricky picking happiness. <laughs> <laughs> No, nonsense. I I love this movie. I thought it was great. Uh, Chris, what's your experience with it? Uh, Well, I mean, like I was, this was a movie I watched a lot when I was in college. I think these were the kinds of like indie movies that were very big, you know, between like Mm -hmm. 1998 and 2002. This is the kind of movie, you know, it's actually funny. I remember thinking this movie was a lot funnier than I found it this time watching it mm. because I think when I used to watch it at like two in the morning really high in college like we would just laugh at this movie and I <laughs> watching it again I was like I should have probably seen a psychiatrist about that like <laughs> I'll say when I when I watched it in high school you know we laughed at it like I think high school boys laughed at it it's transgressive it's yeah, shocking right. you can mm. tell that it's pissing off all the people that you want to piss off and so you're excited about it over the years, I've I still laugh. I think with the movie, but I find it uh, extremely compassionate, and no, I think more yeah. compassionate than than people even gave it credit for at the time. If yeah. you look back on a lot of reviews, which I'm sure we'll talk about, a lot of the criticism was that he was just sort of like a misanthrope parading this group of freaks around to like poke you in the eye and make fun of them. And I don't really see that to be the case with the movie um, at all. I think it's unflinching. And its portrait of depravity and sickness, but I think it's and and isolation and loneliness. But I think it's also very human. Um, but we'll talk about I think why 
I don't know why I keep saying we'll talk about. We're already yeah, talking. we're talking about it right now. <laughs> we're literally I, I talking about it right now. Yeah, I do think there are some intentional choices in the movie mm. that make you question whether or not he is compassionate, and that is very intentional on the part of of the filmmaker. Yeah, can I read? I mean, this is from the Wikipedia page of the movie, but this is a Roger Ebert review of the movie. Um, he says, <laughs> this is exactly what you're saying, Ricky. The depraved are only seeking what we all seek, but with a lack of ordinary moral vision. In a film that looks into the abyss of human despair, there is the horrifying suggestion that these characters may not be grotesque exceptions, but part of the mainstream of humanity. I have that quote written down too, Chris, in fact. Uh, <laughs> we all went to the Wikipedia I, all, page, all right? I got there first. I got there first. No, you know, no, I, Chris, I, I went Chris, you, you cannot step on the host's toes. We talked about this, dog. <laughs> No, I only mentioned that because I, I was curious about reviews of it. I was interested to see how few are still available from a lot of, you know, more mainstream and kind of top critics and, and from publications. Uh, but especially, I mean, I'm always interested to see what Roger Ebert has to say about the movie um, and to see that he gave this one a, a you know, perfect four star rating and, and really loved this movie uh, was, was something, you know, I, I, I appreciated that. And I think his review, uh, really hits the nail on the head. Um, uh, but before we talk a little bit more about it, Carly, what was your take on the movie? What was your feelings on it? This was a first time watch for you too. How did it go? I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. No question mark. I also found it at times, um, at once difficult to watch and at the same time, like incredibly intoxicating. Um, like I couldn't tear my eyes away from certain parts of it. Um, and I too left feeling like this is an incredibly 90s film and also deeply, a deeply, deeply human um, piece of art and a very important artifact from a very important time in America specifically. I'll say that two movies that came to mind when I was watching it were, and they're on opposite ends of the decade, Slacker and American Beauty for yes. mm -hmm. various reasons, which we can get into. But for now, I'll just say like the sort of windiness, the serpentine storytelling that Linklater does in Slacker um, is also in, present in this film but things are a little bit more insular and the characters are more connected and we circle back um, a lot more than you do in Slacker. But it felt like one of those sort of like meandering um, day in the life of stories that Slacker, uh, that Slacker does so well. And very much like American Beauty in the sense that it's sort of playing with this idea of like, what's the dark underbelly of like white middle-class America um, and, and Todd Salons, the filmmaker, um, I just think handles the storytelling beautifully. And, um, and to Ricky's point, like there were times when I was feeling his ire. And then there were times when a character would say a line and I just felt profound sadness or empathy, um, because of, you know, three or four words that they uttered out of their mouth. I think it's interesting that you bring up American Beauty because um, as much as we say this is such a, a 90s film, I actually think that with this film and Welcome to the Dollhouse, you can feel a very washed over 
uh, in like Todd Salon influence on culture following those two movies, mm-hmm. both in film and television. I think of like Pen Fifteen these days, mm-hmm. or any kind of like I mean, Napoleon team. Dynamite, right? You wouldn't have. Yes. That. Oh yeah. Totally. But like, none of them have the um, like the provocation, bravery, the courage, the bra- you know. Yeah, and the yeah, and the compassion that happiness has. Mm-hmm. Yet happiness is the one that's totally unavailable. It's, I mean, yeah. this is something I would love to talk about is the extent to which this movie, which has an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, has been memory hold. Like, Completely. You, you cannot get it anywhere. I had to watch it via the Internet Archive on, in some way. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's hard to get a hold of. And, I, you know, I was having this conversation with with Ricky and a DM, too, that, like, there are other uh, famous contentious, you know, difficult to find, difficult to watch movies uh, out there. You know, this last weekend I watched uh, The Devils, the Ken Russell film, and I had an easier time finding that through both like, uh, you know, legal channels on streaming and uh, through other channels than I did this film. I could not find this film anywhere except for, you know, when when Ricky was gracious enough to share with us uh, an opportunity to watch it. I pirated it. I tore. I torrented it. There was there he go. loves torrenting. He loves torrenting. There's, there's, there's no, no other, other way, way to watch it. No, there's no other way to watch this movie. I have a DVD that I bought in like 2004. Yeah. That I so. still own. That looks like absolute shit. It's 720p in a four by three screen. On my, yeah. I didn't take a picture, but it's like if you can imagine, it's like this, and then a box inside of that, like right. this, like a window box of, kind of thing. Yes, yeah. it's like a box in a box in a box. It yeah, looks they, awful. Yeah, there's a Reddit thread about this movie where you, people are asking how to find it, and there was a link to some portal through the the Wayback Machine where oh it had God. Spanish subtitles, but it, the quality was actually great. I watched it like with my laptop connected to my TV and it looked fantastic. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. there you go. I'm kind of but, into the Spanish subtitles thing. It's like Duolingo. But if we're talking a little bit about like the reception to this film and, and you know, why it feels contentious and, and all of that, I will say, I, you know, I I posted that we were watching this, this movie on Twitter.com and more than a few people commented and were like, ooh, Oh no! Oh, never again! That movie is oh, and it like led me to anticipate something much more bleak than this movie. Yeah, at least in my fucking, mind, it's, it's not solo. Like, it's, yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's not yeah. solo. It's not, and it's and it's very funny. You know, it's like, just, and I, it's I, just I, kind of like awkward a lot more than it is like un- excruciatingly like violent or you know hard to watch. Yeah, that's what yeah. that's what it is. That's what this movie presaged, presa- presaged, presaged. Uh, which is like awkward cringe comedy, mm-hmm. which I think you see like after happiness and as well as like the dark underbelly of suburbia, but that's really beginning with like blue velvet and before mm-hmm. that. But I think like, I, I think you really start to see the awkward cringe comedy uh, come to light after like Miranda July does me and you and everybody. Everyone yes. we know. Miranda and, July like, was the, one of the first people I thought of after I finished this movie. In fact, you know, I, I think that her particular brand of this sort of awkward comedy it's a little more twee. Her characters get out a little bit uh, less scathed. Yeah, it feels like Salon's like was at an impet, like a fork in the road of the culture for characters like this. And everybody went twee, and he went fucking dark. And <laughs> yes. nobody wanted, like, yeah. nobody wanted to go in that direction anymore. I mean, he made I don't know, like five films after Happiness, but none of them nearly as successful as Dollhouse and Happiness. I mean, this movie is certainly the funniest movie I've ever seen in which 
multiple young boys get molested. Like, it, you mean, know, it's it's subject matter is very dark. Like, if you tell someone what this movie is about rather than just have them watch it, uh, I mean, it sounds very kind of deranged. It sounds very kind of perturbed. So much so that, I mean, this is this is the big problem with it, right? Why it's been kind of memory hold is it seems like a lot of people found the subject matter distasteful, even if the approach to it, even if the presentation of it actually does, I, I think works, you know, it, and, and deals with it in a way that doesn't feel immature. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, provocative without, uh, without reason. There's, there doesn't ever seem to be, you know, him just trying to elicit, you know, shock and awe from anybody. But a lot of people thought that about the work because I think more so than anything, he is also a joke writer and he writes amazing fucking jokes and he Mm. can't, sometimes it feels like he can't help himself, but to punctuate a scene with a joke. And I actually think that that's part of the provocation at times, but you look at a scene where the son, the father is confessing to the son that he raped these two boys and the, and this, and, and it's a heartbreaking, beautiful scene. And the kid is crying. The kid is crying. Right. And you could, you know, following the confession, you could be left with this beautiful poignant scene, but instead he ends it with the son asking, would you fuck me? And the father saying, no, I would jerk off instead, which is like, (laughs) Jesus. Like, but I, I, you know, I've, I've seen this movie a number of times and sometimes I've watched it and I've been kind of like, fuck that. Like, why would you wrap this scene up that way? That's so fucking brutal and unnecessary. You'd already had like a, a really poignant moment that sealed the deal on your movie. But watching it today, I was kind of like, no, that's great. Like, it's you great. Know, like, you don't need to be manipulative. You don't need to seal the deal on your idea. Like, you yeah. need to poke even more. Right. And it yeah. seems genuine. It seems also, genuine to the character. Like, it seems like yes. it's, it's true yes. in the scene. You know, completely. Yes. Totally. And also, completely. he is a pedophile, right? So right. it's like we don't really want to <laughs> wrap up a scene being kind of like, oh, this poor man. You know, well, like, he, like that's that's it. the right answer, right? Like that yeah. is what he would say. He'd be like. No, but like no, I you could know. never. But he's like an uncontrolled. He has uncontrolled sexual urges right. towards children, so he's like, Precisely. I would jack off. I also think that like the, you know, this this film is about people and like their messiness and the ways that they're complicated and life is not always like a script, right? Like there, I have plenty of like heartbreaking conversations where like I laugh in the middle of them or whatever. And like, I appreciate that he does punctuate some of those more difficult and heartbreaking moments with some humor that to Chris's point feels like it would be coming out of the the character's mouth, but also like you know, explores the complicated feelings we have as humans and like that we can feel two things at once that oftentimes we tell ourselves are mutually exclusive. And I just like that he puts you in a posture where you're like kind of on your toes because you are, you know, moved and you're you're sort of repulsed by some of the things, but you're also laughing and like, loving uh, some of what you're seeing you're sympathetic to the characters and you're also like so mad at them and disgusted by them and it changes from second to second you know yes it does does really keep you on your toes as a viewer right and you're often feeling things you don't you don't want to feel but you Mm -hmm. can't help but feel 
And at the same time, there's all these like distancing effects that he has with the aesthetic, right? Where he's constantly like calling into like sitcom themes and performances mm. that oftentimes are like, uh, like feel referential towards how sitcom people would behave. And so you could be in the midst of a moment where a man is trying to drug a child to rape him. And there's something about like the, the music shifts all of the sudden into some sort of like childlike dream music as he watches the child like shift while playing video games, you know, like, so he's, he's provoking in, in, in that way too. Whereas I think a regular, a, a normal filmmaker would be like, look at this villain, look at how horrible this is. Look at how awful this moment is where he's adding all these layers to like, fuck with how you might take the scene. Are you laughing at it? Are you horrified? Yes. You know, like, I mean, that uh, is that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because of the way that I mean, talk about bravery. So he's trying to drug this child to have sex with him. Right. He's trying to drug this child to have sex. Why is that your favorite scene, Chris? Because it's they turn it into this kind of like Jesus Christ, you have kids, Chris. I just really identified with it No, because they um, they're playing it in this kind of like Tom and Jerry thing where the kid won't eat his drugged food. And the dad is basically like has big anime sweat beads coming off his forehead. And he's like, there must be something you want to eat. Come on. What do you want? And he's like badge. And his wife is going, come on. He doesn't need anything. And he's like, no, he needs something. It's, it's like, very funny. I see. I'll run to the store and get that for you. It's two she's in like, the morning. She's like, "What are you talking about? You're not going to go to the store." And he's like, huh, "Okay." Huh, yeah. <laughs> Do you want a tuna sandwich, Johnny? <laughs> so it had to be a tuna sandwich too. I was like, so "It's on white bread." Like, ugh. So um, I I will say I'm I'm glad you brought up the score, Ricky, because I thought the score was like fucking brilliant for this movie (laughs) like an example okay so when when philip seymour hoffman's character who literally just like grunts out every word he says (laughs) and mouth breathes through everything um he Uh. is he is calling up lara flynn boyle's character who she's like Laura Flynn Boyle's in her practice era, right? Oh God, right. Catherine yeah. Mannheim is there too. So yeah, she's just like people. totally hot. And um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is calling her up to just like say a bunch of terrible shit to her. Um, and one of the things that he says to her, just as an aside, that literally made me laugh out loud. Like I guffawed out into this like silent living room that I was watching this movie in was when he said, he said, I'm going to fuck you so hard that I'm going to make cum shoot out of your mouth. I just like (laughs) lost my shit. Lost my shit. He says that in his opening scene in the therapist's office, he's like, he's like, I want to pump, pump, pump until my, my dick shoots out of her and cum shoots out of her ears. And then he pauses and goes, uh, not that I could actually ever do that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, okay, wait, sorry, I I got derailed for a second. But so he's calling her up. This is later in the film. um, And he's gonna say all this like terrible shit to her. And there's this like, incredible opera music playing and it's scoring the scene. And it's like, a really sort of like sweeping, intense moment in like an old, I don't know, like silent movie where like, the score, the strings come up and, you know, there's like all of this sort of like swirl of voices and it's like him like calling her up and like saying disgusting shit to her or it's like total silence between them. There, There's another scene too when 
the pedophile dad first sees mm-hmm. this like little Twinkie boy that he ends up raping. Um, and it's, it's scored like a, like a scene in a, a romantic movie when right, right the protagonist there. sees his, his, his love interest for the first time and it's slow motion. It's like, <laughs> he is in this. Scene. And we're inside his point of view of him being just like, overcome at seeing this boy you know (laughs) the the scene with philip seymour hoffman calling lara flynn boyle you you reminded me of like following the call when she's like i want like she star 69s him and is like who are you and he freaks out and hangs out the phone and his office mate comes in the room and it's like (laughs) it's like one of the funniest moments of the movie the guy's like you catch those playoffs last night and philip seymour hoffman's caught off guard he's like yep yep Yep, and he's like, "Man, I was on my knees praying for that shot." He goes, it it worked. <laughs> I like I like the just kind of like uh, random references to the playoff that comes throughout because yeah. Catherine Mannheim right. invites him to the playoff, right? Like he's like, "I have I have an extra ticket. Do you want to go with me?" But see, I uh, think this is such a symptom of there is some stuff about this movie that I don't love, and it does have this kind of. Um, like that's such a sports ball thing, if you know what I mean, where it's like yeah. a nerd, you know, a nerdy Todd Salons' impression of like these chads that like have mm. mainstream interests. So he just has them all talking about like the playoff, which is like, okay. And especially for 1998, that's like not the worst joke in the world, but it does. There is a part of like the, this movie, as much as it's sympathetic towards the outcast which is the what the movie's about it's very nasty towards regular people without mm. really having them do anything explicitly hateful until maybe like one point in the movie but you can just tell that he hates regular people so much i mean that was such a pose in in the 90s but it, it's like that's one of those like okay come on yeah they're all talking about do sports you, ball see- todd okay great this is I, I actually i'm glad that you brought this up because mm-hmm. i think this is one of the major discrepancies or like splits when it comes to Todd's salons. And I kind of disagree. I I disagree that he hates these people. I think that one of the, I think that the reason for them existing in this movie, with the exception of like a cheap joke about the playoffs, but is that there is an insensitivity to being functionally normal in American society. There's like an underbelly of rot at the core of it and dismissal of anything like outside of that norm that like perpetuates perpetuates these, these perversions or whatever issues that these people have and keeps them buried underneath the surface that, you know, that we see like Molly Shannon scene where they're like, she can't even think about the fact that this woman is suffering because someone she knows killed herself. She has to immediately focus on whether or not he looks like Edward James almost. Right. Like, (laughs) like that, that's such a great moment of how like it, like, and, and Trish, the mom as well does the same thing. Sorry, Aaron, you're going to say, no, I was going to, I was going to agree with you, Ricky, that, you know, I, I think that the, the sports ball kind of moment, the playoff joke, um, is maybe the least effective of that kind of thing that Solange is aiming for in the movie. But I think uh, Ricky is is right. I, I think that, you know, the, the film is not malicious towards normalcy. I think it's just an observation about that anemic quality to all of it, to just like kind of like that standard existence, you know, like, like yeah, the Molly Shannon scene. It's, yeah. But it's all very feckless, especially exactly. like the conversations with coworkers, right? They're right. sort of, mm-hmm. they contrast so much with what we see from the rest of the characters because of how sort of like empty calories they are. And I think that's yeah. 
that's more of a, a commentary on sort of like, you know, how, how lacking of feeling like most of our day to day, like quotidian interactions with people are until, you know, they're not. I mean, yeah. I think a good, a good example to, uh, to push back even more on you, Chris. I'm sorry. I, look, I'm being <laughs> polite. Let's all beat I'm, up on Chris. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm no, but, fucking go. But, <laughs> but I think at the, at the at the at the school, the language school for refugees, when the woman approaches uh, Joy and she's like, "There's this one Russian guy in my class. He, I have such a huge crush on him. He's so hot." But you know, Russians, uh, bo, right? It's like, oh, what a what a shitty person. But the main character that we're focused on in this scene has fucked this guy and like this guy is married and she totally broke the rules of the yep. job that she yep. has and boundaries because she's a fucking lonely, depressed person. So it's not like that normal person who made fun of BO. That's a fairly like, like trivial thing to deal. like make fun, like big of a deal. Yeah. But the movie, yes, is like showing that there's insensitivities everywhere. Right. And like slightly mocking this person, but it's not nearly as bad as the woman who's about to get assaulted for her transgressions. <laughs> right. right. My, my favorite of these punchlines comes at the very end of the movie. We'll talk about the rest of it, too, I promise. But when they're talking about uh, Catherine Mannheim having killed the doorman and oh, cutting yeah. him up and putting him in the freezer in baggies and getting rid of him. And <laughs> the mother <laughs> says, oh, my God, I use baggies. And Lara hmm. Flynn Boyle says, everybody uses baggies. That's why everyone can relate to this crime. <laughs> but my, what, I love, what I love about that scene is that Trish whose husband has basically, you can assume, been arrested for mm -hmm. pedophilia, for, for raping young boys. She, she jumps in and goes, I can't, very yeah. emphatically yeah, and very angrily, because she's like yes. unwilling to accept that like she, more than anyone, can probably relate to, to like living with someone who's sick. <laughs> yeah. Can we, can we talk about, because we kind of touched on it at the beginning, what independent film looked like in 1998 versus like what it looks like right now in terms yeah. of what filmmakers could do and wanted to do and what audiences were potentially game for though. I don't want to stretch too far. I don't think happiness really was like a box office, you know, bonanza, but I think it but... did fit into this, like this mode of independent filmmaking at the time, which was like a complicated story with a bunch of characters where they're all misfits and, you know, it's kind of satirizing normal suburban life. I mean, we were talking about, I was talking about sports ball, like that's blues hammer, right? That's like the same mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, or even like something like a movie I really like, which is, but I'm a cheerleader. It's that same kind of thing, but that's in a yeah. much more heightened universe. Right. And, yeah. and there's, and even like it, there's parallels to movies like, seven days in the valley or something you know or two days in the valley whatever that movie's called where it's just mm -hmm. like a million different characters happening all at the same time i'm sure if you're like an agent or if you're ben gazzara you're like oh yeah that's what these independent movies are like you know and the, and yeah. it's some kind of I mean, and in a sense you could say like i mean the pedophile is doing a crime and he is getting arrested by the police like there's a certain shallow way to look at this movie as just being like like every single other independent movie or even like a movie like there's something about mary like it's one of these crazy gross out comedies <laughs> you know i don't know we that I, I think that you could i think people in hollywood probably did view these movies on kind of a continuum where there wasn't a lot of daylight between them mm -hmm. yeah i agree we've we've talked previously on this show about a working theory that a lot of the movies in the late 90s 
even mainstream ones, but I think definitely from the independent circle were wrestling with this kind of like ambient anxiety as we approach the millennium and and very much sort of like playing with this idea of questioning reality. There's a lot of films like this coming out in 98 and 99. I think both for you know, sort of bigger movies like The Matrix and smaller independent films like this one, that through line for me is that this sort of after the end of history and like moving through a decade where like for the most part, you know, the narrative that's playing out is like everything is fine and good when we very right. much know that it's not. Um, I feel like the movies towards towards 2000 get to be much more dark and much more sort of like this veneer that sits on top of everything that we call, you know, like the American dream, like this doesn't feel right. There's, there's something else going on here. And this movie feels like it fits really nicely into, you know, the, the films adjacent to it that I think are also exploring something similar. It's interesting when I was watching this film today I've I, and I've definitely had the experience of watching the movie and thinking like oh this satire feels very dated or from a time when everything was like largely seemingly okay and all we had to care about was how like you know your office mate wasn't really your office mate or like you know office work is kind of boring and lame isn't it don't you want to be cooler and hip or whatever and upon watching it now, it felt like a little more timeless to me mm-hmm. and felt a little more like, sure, there's no internet in it, but you could transplant a lot of those fetishes and a lot of that alienation and loneliness to people on the internet interacting I mean, with it that way. I mean, remove yeah. the remove the crank phone calls and turn it into fucking chat roulette. I don't know. Like, it could be anything. Yeah. Um, but there's so, a great thing with the Dylan Baker character where he has his... Uh, dream he's telling his psychiatrist his dream where he is being a mass shooter right where I mean yeah. like that speaks to today pretty strongly and it did make me I was watching that and, and in general I was thinking the way this movie Todd Salons is obviously so in touch with this like you know white male disaffection that's like violent and, and antisocial but but mm-hmm. also like pathetic and I was like why hasn't he made a movie about like you know like the alt-right about like online racists like he seems about school, you know, shooters. Like he seems very in touch with this feeling that has only gotten like much stronger in the decades since this movie has come out. It's in some of his movies, some of his later work, but it's, it, I think it's pretty hard to, it's like making a satire about Donald Trump. You right. know, I mean, like, right. What sure. Do you, sure. What are you, right. you going to do? It satires like, itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, but it's you, not quite so topical, but I mean, there are traces of all of this kind of stuff that feel very prescient. It all feels kind of like very predictive of what 21st century America would kind of be like. He has these sorts of interesting critiques on American liberalism. And I don't think it's like a mistake at all that a lot of the sets, a lot of the feeling of the movie kind of puts you in sort of a timeless state. Like it is very 90s, but it also feels aesthetically kind of like it's hearkening back towards like mid-century kind of like mm-hmm. stuff you know in a lot of ways mostly it's like suburban settings you know the colors of the walls the the houses and the rows of stuff that you know populate certain areas but one of the things that i one of the the points in this movie that i, I love is when jane adams character joy 
she's quit her job at like the the phone sales place whatever it is that she's doing and she goes to like work uh with immigrants presumably i guess like uh i I don't know what she's doing exactly maybe teaching them in order for them to get their citizenship what have you and she walks directly into the center of a labor protest uh and the the scene even opens with her like in the middle of this like picket circle where they're calling her a scab and she's urging these people she's like i think you need to to think about like the real victims here the people who are really struggling like the immigrants and i thought like you know in in looking at a, a movie from 1998 i was like this is one of the most like topically resonant things i've seen like this idea of like using marginalized communities as cudgels against like labor organization and against like working people you know like these people are just asking for like a better standard of living and she's looking at people who she thinks have it worse and and you know kind of developing this sort of ethos around it that like what she's doing is actually the moral good and like the the righteous thing and then you know she's a character who's who lacks so much confidence that she then like adopts a phrase that she overhears another woman telling an, another a woman who's like struggling with this same kind of tension and is like, no, 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 you're, you're, you're not a scab. You're a strike breaker. And I just, I there that that is perfect. Masha. There is Masha. <laughs> yeah. I love that the immigrants even call her a scab. Like <laughs> yeah. you are scab. <laughs> but that's also like pretty, pretty resonant, right? That idea of like, yeah taking you know a a term like scab and like turning it into having something that has like a moral polish to it which is like what liberalism does on a daily basis with like anything and everything that's complicated or challenging it's doing land acknowledgements in the middle of like an anti-union conversation (laughs) yes totally with that with that posture of like and she delivers it too with that sense of superiority and sort of like moral rectitude where she's like i'm a strike breaker and she says (laughs) it with purpose and that i mean that just totally that feels like today there's i mean there is so much of this that does feel really timeless and i think it's really interesting too because her thing her whole thing this line of like the real victims are the the immigrants you know it's like her own class consciousness and how she perceives herself like she is obviously extremely broke but um because of her you know family connections her proximity to people that are doing well it's like she can't process the idea that like she is somebody who's doing badly it's like right. oh, like you know i'm a white lady everything for me is fine but like these immigrants they're the ones that need help you yes know? there's even a point in the movie when they're talking about how and it's prior to her just deciding to go teach here they're talking her sisters are talking about how she's just like quit her job and decided that she was going to go like do good or something. And I was like, that is a privileged position that like only like nice privileged white ladies have the opportunity to do right. Where you get to actually say like, I'm going to stop working and I'm going to go do some good because that's what's important. And that's, what's going to make me feel good about myself. But like, she's, she doesn't have a job like she she lives with her parents and she doesn't have a job and she's still in a position, as you say, Chris, to be able to say, like, yeah, I'm just going to like loaf around and like teach some classes and make minimum wage and do whatever. 
just speaking of that, her living with her parents, there's a great scene where she is on a date and the it's with the Russian student, right? Who's played by uh, Jeremy Harris. Like so excited. Jared, 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 Jared Harris. So, yeah. so, so well. excited so to see funny. him in this movie. Like me so too. Good. Oh my god, looking like an absolute like dirt bag, but like really young and healthy also, you know? Yeah, he looks, this is the most he's I think it, this is the most he's ever looked like his dad to me. Like he mm-hmm. he looks quite a bit uh yeah. like, like him in this one. Well, you hardly ever see him with the hair like that, right? Like no. basically yeah. now, especially not these days. Um, but she has a great line where he's she says, Oh, you know, I'm living with my parents right now, but I'm I'm gonna move out soon. And he says, Oh, how long have you lived here? And she said, Oh, s- since I was born. <laughs> that line is so good. And I, I was uh, like, Yeah, she of course. That is, she yeah. has lived there since she was born. <laughs> like I really like the line where she's like, Do you miss Russia? And he goes, Fuck the cunts of Russia. It's like the best. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Like every time she tries to have some sort of like uh, like her own and like attempt at connection with him, she's just totally off the mark, you know. I, and I, 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 it's the kind of satire that I feel like we have sort of like the satire of like well well intentioned liberals we see all mm. the time. I think especially now, but it's never been as like fucking thorny and sharp as as it is in this movie because. This movie would eventually have the like, or not this movie, but another version of this movie, the immigrant would be like, Vlad would be like, hey, you know, you're wrong. And this is the way that it actually is. You're like out of touch with what's really going on. Where he instead, Vlad is like, I am thief. I steal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's funny about this movie and what you're saying, uh, Ricky, is like, how frequently this movie punishes its characters for like taking pity on someone else Mm -hmm. or trying to like be good for the sake of somebody else. The other, like one of my other favorite moments in this movie is um, when Philip Seymour Hoffman's character finally kind of like takes pity on, on uh, Cameron Mannheim and feels bad about like how he's kind of like ignored her. There's clearly this kind of like unrequited sort of interest they go out to a bar, they dance, they go out to a diner, and then she like uh, makes him an accomplice to a murder <laughs> and admits that she was raped by the doorman and then she broke his neck and cut him up into pieces and has slowly been getting rid of his body. Uh, and and it's just she like she says so... all this while she's eating a strawberry ice cream sundae. Yes. <laughs> strawberry ice cream all over the place in this movie. What is a boy to do? Um, but <laughs> I love, I, you know, I, I think, um, the sequence with her and Philip Seymour Hoffman is one that a lot of people take issue with because mm. it is that sense that like, finally there is a moment of potential happiness in this movie yeah. and it's undercut by like having to question whether or not Salons is making fun of this, this, this character, this woman. I really don't think that he is. Um, mm. But I do think he goes pretty far into the grotesque. Um, again, it's a provocation, and I uh, I appreciate it. But I think that um, that the the scene, well, one like I got, I'm gonna say I'm gonna try to say this and sound like re- remotely sensitive. How often do you see someone that is not conventionally attractive get sexually assaulted in film? Right. Like yeah, although- how often how often do you actually see someone who is 
most likely largely thought of as vulnerable, largely thought of as someone who mm -hmm. like by a predator thinks that they, they, they won't say anything about it because no one would believe them because yeah. of the rule beauty standards that society gives us. I don't, I, th I think it's a rarity to experience a scene like that in a film and it's heartbreaking but then she starts talking about cutting up the body while eating up an ice cream sundae. Yeah. And Philip Seymour often sips his Coke and sits <laughs> down and it's rocks. It's so good. It's pitch perfect, by the way. That's oh, wait, it's can fantastic. I, can Brilliant. I say, can I, this, this, so she's recounting this sexual assault, this rape that the doorman has done on her. And this is why she's killed him. Like, I, you do feel like maybe this is supposed to be on some level a funny rape scene because there's like a mismatch between their physicalities and like I, I don't and the way that her character is treated in general like I, I guess I was wondering if anybody else thought there was something with the way that rape is portrayed that was like I don't I know I, exploitive like you're saying Ricky like I thought it was I didn't I don't think that the actual scene where he's where he's assaulting her is funny. I mean, no. he pulls her, she's screaming and he pulls her hair and is chasing her while, while holding her, holding her by her ponytail. Like it's pretty brutal and he's calculating it before it happens. Mm -hmm. There's a whole moment where he's staring at her and he talks, he even tries to humanize this guy in this moment, right? He says his wife died three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I, you know, he is a lot smaller than her. I guess and there's something could, about, could, and he's, you know, he's got a very heavy accent and he's going like, you beautiful, you beautiful, you beautiful. And like jumping <laughs> on her, like climbing her basically, like trying to kiss her. And it's like, given the way that the other scenes with this character have gone throughout the movie, I don't think it's a crazy reading that on some level Salons is showing this to be like a ridiculous encounter. But they've, with that character, they've only been tragic up to that point, right? Yeah. She asked him out on a date. He said, no, she tore up the tickets. She found him drunk and like laid down with him and got close to him, which seems to be on based off of what we learn about her in that scene. That's the closest she's gotten with a man with the exception of being assaulted. Mm -hmm. And then he gets up to throw up and then tells her to get the fuck out violently. So this is the only time that we've really had with her where it wasn't pretty brutal and depressing. Okay. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm, I, ha I'm happy to be wrong, guys, you know, but... And, well, and this is what I like about this this scene, which what I... And I think it serves multiple purposes, and I think it's so effective because of all the character things that it succeeds at doing all at once. So... I will say that the Cameron Mannheim character up to this point is kind of pathetic, right? We're meant to kind of like take pity on her. She's sad. She's like not conventionally attractive. She's heavier. And we get this kind of moment like, like Ricky alluded to where it feels like, Oh, these two characters are, are right for each other. Right. There's this kind of like uh, creepy kind of sweaty guy uh, who you know is is setting his sights on and and you know lusting after these more conventionally attractive women like a Lara Flynn Boyle and uh, it's just never going to happen right but here's here's someone who he can actually mix with who's clearly interested in him here's like here's a connection and then in that moment when they're at the diner they manage to blow that up by making her a murderer. And they also, for the first time in the movie, succeed at actually giving her agency in something. Like, she's 
pitiable up to this point. And then we find out, oh no, she like, she killed her assailant. Like uh, to me, I think it works really well. And I didn't think that any of it was funny until mm-hmm. she breaks his neck. And when she actually like <laughs> snaps his neck and you see it and like Back. her like kill yeah. him is the first time when I had this kind of uneasy, like, oh my God, kind of like laugh. But before that, the entire proceeding is horrifying. And then when it takes that like kind of 180, it, it, I don't know, it, it to me felt like a really earned provocation in the movie. I think it, I think it succeeded at doing a lot of things that the movie succeeded with elsewhere without going that far, but was like necessary to those particular characters. I, I, I think that he is actually like, if you laugh when this woman orders ice cream, which is clearly a comfort for her and has been established as that while she's telling a story about being assaulted and is also talking about how she hates physical intimacy mm-hmm. to a person that she just danced with that she's been pining after who just said that he liked her and she orders this ice cream. She's like, and also confesses to this, to this murder. There are so many layers of defense that she is putting on there that if you are, I laugh at that scene. I laugh at Philip Seymour Hoffman's reactions. I think they're very funny, but I do think that if you laugh at certain things that she talks about and says, he is forcing you to ask yourself, why are you laughing at that? Well, see, this you is know? the it's thing. It's not necessarily wrong. No. Because he does slightly play it. Cheat, like, you know, in, in, he does call attention to these things, but he is asking, why are you laughing? Like, why do you laugh at this? See, I, and I, I don't want to disagree with everyone, and you're all very you're, intelligent. I've disagreed with you, you know. multiple do it, Chris. times. Please disagree with me. I think that, do that it. You're, if you're establishing that Todd Salons is somebody who I think does genuinely have misanthropic point of views as a human being, and he's expressing them through filmmaking, and we can see in the pedophile character, you know, being a mass shooter and, you know, feeling being himself a kind of cheap satire of a 1950s sitcom dad. But instead of talking about baseball, they're talking about jacking off. And it's this like thing that's going a runner throughout the movie where it's just a joke. Basically they're just for no reason having conversations about jacking off with 1950s sitcom music playing under it, where he keeps telling him to like do your best to jack off better. And I love you and I believe in you. And that's a running bit in the movie. I think for you guys to posit that Todd Salons is playing some three-dimensional chess where while he may be showing all of these things in the movie, it's really just to challenge you as the viewer to think, why are you enjoying this? I think it's a lot simpler to say Todd Salons thinks on some level this character is funny and has put this character in the movie to be abused and to be downtrodden from a sexist point of view because the sympathetic downtrodden characters are almost all men and I think that this character is not inherently sympathetic and is played and photographed and styled in a way to make her exist in a kind of heightened reality, even apart from the other characters in the movie, where she is in a position to be looked down upon. And I think that he plays with that a little bit, but I don't think it's entirely this kind of genius faint construct. I think that he is doing it. He looks like he's doing it because he's doing it. You know, you think he's doing it. You think he's doing it because he looks down on her. Yes. That could be the case. I, I but I think that I am saying he's asking you, if you look down on her. That's I'm sorry, but I, I do, I do, I do. And, and I'm not saying necessarily that you do, but I, I think that that's what he's up to. 
I think he is intentionally putting conventionally unattractive people on screen in unattractive light in order to ask for you to ask yourself, what are you laughing at? But Why see, are you laughing at yes. it? And what is it about this woman being sexually assaulted and needing food as a comfort to talk about her assault and her assailant that is funny but to see, you? This is the thing is I think the Philip Seymour Hoffman character is treated in this way, but I think this character shows up does something pathetic and then it's a different scene and she is not the, deepened the, in that way how you know is the philip seymour hoffman character <laughs> treated in this way he shoots cum on a wall and puts a postcard on it he's disgusting somehow it's poignant the way that's presented in this movie whereas somehow I this would, woman being raped is presented as funny you know i would argue you need to you need to check where your empathies are going <laughs> from. <laughs> you need to figure out what's going on with you i, I like I the totally spirited debate i am totally fine with saying that it may not be the author's intention that that yes. uh, salons may have had other uh, means in mind, other other aims in mind. Okay, so we're split 50-50 on this then. <laughs> yeah, well, well, here's the, th- here's the in, thing is... I'm w- with Ricky on this one. I mean, that's great. I, I, I mean, think, I'm going def- to defend that- it, but I think that, you know, whatever his aims, whatever his goals are, the execution of it at the very least leads us to have... A spirited debate about yes, the reading of the scene, yes. and yeah, I think I that agree. that is more important than whatever the artist's actual intention is. Often, totally, totally. That's another another element of the '90s '90s art that I miss. Um, I think that unfortunately went the wrong way, which is why it doesn't exist anymore, really. But the argument of like exploitation versus art. Is this yeah. exploitation or is this artistic? That was mm-hmm. very much a, 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 a part of 90s independent film and art, but then Vice happened and we could no mm. longer have good things in the world anymore, right? <laughs> well, right. I mean, and, I love Harmony Corrine. I love Harmony Corrine. Yes. And this is yeah. a conversation people have about all of his movies. Like, are they exploitation? I think Harmony Corrine is inherently a little more sympathetic towards his, his real-life people that he finds and puts in his movies. But I also think on some like level, Gucci Harmony Corrine does think they're funny, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think, but I, I agree. But I would say that Todd Salons thinks that his characters are funny. I don't think he's not trying to he's trying to say that they're not funny. I think that he is intentionally put butting up against things that are funny, that are jokes, with things that are actually just part of this character that are sort of that are conf- you. I mean, you kind of said this before, Chris. It's like putting tone on top of tone and then confusing you, so you're not exactly sure how you're supposed to feel right, yeah, at, a, yeah. at any partic- at any at any given moment. The specific example of the character that we're fighting over. That's I, I, I I'll I'll keep fighting you on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know I'll I'll agree with you. This is a conversation that I feel like we also had on your program, Ricky and Chris, about how much ambiguity gets lost and how artists can't really do things like this anymore and, and provoke for the sake of discussion uh, in their art because everything has become like this sort of like moralizing through the through the avenues of media, right? That like right. most movies now, most mainstream movies, even independent movies have to be like a Twitter thread, right? Like they have to be the morally just perspectives and when people consume them, it's because uh, this thing is telling me the the correct perspective on a touchy subject, on like a, well, a social or political subject. The conversations are all about artist intent now. Like the yeah. the distance between experience as a as a movie going audience member and like artist 
making film is has been shortened uh you know by leagues and and is picked apart like ad nauseum online and in you know fandoms virtual literal and everywhere in between and i feel like the that has removed the thing that we're all sort of playing around in which is like it's it's removed the possibility of like just having a conversation about the experience of watching the movie and has instead become about like the personality behind the movie and like what it's saying and like gay characters doing Hiroshima or whatever. Like that's the, that's what the conversation is. <laughs> is that, is that of, in a movie that's out right now? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, that's eternal. Isn't, it, isn't that eternal? Oh, oh, in the eternals. Right. Thought, yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, I couldn't agree more. I'll just add to it that it was something that I felt. I'll try to make this, this quick, but I feel like it, it's a, a large product of the, um, information age and i don't necessarily mean that because of the internet i mean that people can they want to know that something was based on a true story they want to know that something was based on something they already know and they want to see the take on that right so they want to have information going into it so they it's really hard for a movie to just be a movie because they want people want information about it beforehand it's why during licorice pizza you would talk to someone and they would be like well i don't know the whole like the groomer thing was and it's like that's not even in the movie that's not a part of the movie what the fuck are you talking about how can you even take that from this movie oh you just want information because you don't want to actually have to process and talk about a piece of art because you don't know how you yeah. don't know how to respond to a piece of art and you're scared of being wrong so the only way to be right is to be like that director is a pervert. I yes. heard that that director's bad. I heard that that actor's bad. I heard that this movie's racist. You know, I heard that this is that. That's the that's all that people really have to go on right now because they don't actually want to experience art because they don't have the vocabulary or the um, the knowledge to really have a conversation about it, and they're just consumed by documentary fact and news and tweets and they, oh, sorry I, I lost it Someone no, that's, over. <laughs> no that's totally 100%. it and I would say on the other side of that equation is that filmmakers and perhaps maybe more accurately just sort of the filmmaking apparatus in general that they are unwilling to give us characters that we don't already know if we're talking about this right. like hunger for information like there there is an unwillingness to give us people who we aren't familiar with who we don't have a backstory to we don't know from another thing it's not a reboot it's not a it's not a, a redux or you know they're coming back from another universe or some other shit like no one gives us people that are brand new to us that we don't already have some sort of established relationship or background knowledge about well, and that's feel, that's reciprocated on both sides the the creators and i think the audience members. no i totally agree and i think it's like the art of filmmaking and of script writing has become about ways to make sure the audience knows exactly how they're supposed to feel about the character the second yes. they appear on screen like yes. that is the art of filmmaking now which is yep. very weird yeah, I think that you see that you see that even with non-IP characters, right? You mm -hmm. see that with a character appears on screen, and immediately you know why you hate or 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 like or love them, and it makes them even if they're not part of an IP, it makes them a character that you've already seen a billion right. times, and the movie going in the exact direction yes. that that you know it's going to go in. And I think that goes back to something that you said 
earlier in the conversation about this movie, which is that it seems to be following its own blueprint in terms of storytelling, right? Like in the first act, yes, we get these three sisters. These are how are all these, all these characters are related to them, right? Lives next door, therapist, husband, whatever, you know, we get that. But then after that, they're kind of all on their own doing their own explorations. And within you can almost break the movie up into like, okay, now joy is at school and this is the sequence about joy at school. And then we cut away and now we're going to go back to joy later. And this is the sequence where Johnny Grasso gets introduced. Johnny Grasso comes over. The horror happens. Johnny Grasso goes home. So there's all these mini stories within this larger story, but at no point does the movie have to tell you that that's what it's doing. Right. This is going to be a movie about a lot of stories. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or even, or even starting by being like, this is going to be a movie about sexual deviance. Right? right. And I mean, it starts at a psychiatrist's office. It, these days, somebody would definitely say like, I just feel like I don't even know what happiness means. You know? Right. Yes. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. And by instead, the end, we we have a fake song about happiness that is clearly making fun of putting a song <laughs> yeah. in a movie about yes. your movie. Yes, <laughs> it's so good. It's yeah, a beautiful I mean, we, flourish. But we, then we Todd Salons but... is so hot at the time that at the end credits, Michael Stipe is singing that song. I know. Credits, yes. you know, it's like... perfect. And it totally sounds like an REM song too. I was it like, does. yeah, it, that works. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's good I, REM lyrics. <laughs> I, I also think I'll just say like you know we said that the saying that the movie would announce at the top that it's about sexual deviance. It doesn't do that. But what it does announce at the top of the movie is that it's about being ugly and it's about the way people make you feel that's when true, you're yeah. ugly. Yep. That's mm-hmm. the beginning of the movie. And that's what it says. Um, and I think that's what the movie's really about. I don't think the movie is necessarily, a, yes, it is about deviance and it, and it is about perversion and sickness, but it's about being and feeling ugly in yep. the, in, in a world that despises ugliness. Yes. I think that opening scene is so, so good, by the way. Um, John Lovett's in it for just a brief moment. One of the most like uncomfortable, awkward, like breakup date scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And I think like, you know, if, if it's uh, like, you know, a a mission statement for the entire movie, he gifts her, Uh, an antique ashtray that says joy on the side of it, which I think is like a perfect visual emblem for the entirety of the movie. Right. And then he takes it back and he says, this isn't for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, this, is, it, this is for people who love me. Yeah. Love it's a it. Gainsvort reproduction. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. my favorite moment of that scene is like right at the top where like, They've clearly just broken up. It's quiet between them. And she's like, this restaurant was really good. I'm definitely going to recommend it to my sisters. How many stars did it get? And it cuts to a close-up of Lovitz's face and his eyes flutter because he's like in the midst of all this pain he's feeling is searching for the review in his head. And he's like, four? Four stars? I don't know. I think it's even Oh, I just had so many. um, (laughs) It reminded me of just like the Zagat guide days of our lives when that was a thing that we cared about um when he says to her at the end of that sequence um you uh, until the day you die you will be shit i like (laughs) lost it like it's it's so good because he's he's not he's delivering it with feeling right like he is he is saying it like a person who is um who is incredibly hurt but I also just like could not stop laughing because it was 
it was John Lovitz and he was just like, he landed it perfectly. And I actually thought, so when you said, Aaron, it, it's a, it's an incredibly awkward breakup scene. I don't think that's true. I think it's like really nice up until it turns. And that's the part that is like such like a gut punch is like, yeah. it's pretty like amicable and they're like, nice and they're making chit chat and they're I'm having you know, a good time I always have a good time with I you I always have a good time with you <laughs> and just like that shit right and there's like you know the flutter of a restaurant and all that stuff and it was like going down so easy and then he's like he yanks it back from her and he says all that shit and I'm just like Whoa! okay <laughs> and then blames her in his art? suicide note <laughs> oh my god I know the ultimate the ultimate so, you know, Aaron, you you watched the sequel. I was just going to say this was going to be my my uh, segue that Ricky, you, you know, don't step on the host. We talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was going to say, you know, Salons loves this dinner sequence so very much that he uh, he does it twice and starts his 2009 sequel to this film, Life During Wartime, uh, with the same scene. You know, the the upholstery in the booth is identical. Uh, I think even like, you know, the kind of like bosses and, and glasses on the table are pretty much the same. Uh, and Joy is there now married to Alan uh, at the beginning of this movie. Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, I am pretty certain Carly has not seen this movie. Chris, have you seen Life During Wartime? You know, I feel like I did, but I don't remember dick about it i don't remember <laughs> anything about well it, we're, so. we're not we're not going to harp on it for too long but i know ricky's seen it as well ricky i think you even told me that it might be your favorite salons movie it is i i think it's the i feel like it's the culmination of uh his my culmination is probably the wrong word but uh it, it feels like a rebuttal to happiness but without being unsubtle um it's it's all about you know, the, the major themes of the movie are forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we forgive? And like, what can we forgive? And what does it look like to forgive? And it basically takes the the deviances of happiness and replaces them with the sort of um, uh, the war crimes committed by the United States and Israel yep. <laughs> post 9-11 oh America yep. and the yep. world. And the all the characters from happiness now played by different actors are... Yes, focusing on finding forgiveness for their own, uh, at, like, uh, for their own like crimes from from the first movie, but it's all it's mostly about children trying to understand how to live in a uh, uh, in a horrifying, violent, uh, violent world, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to comprehend what all these words mean, whereas everybody was trying to understand what sex and pedophilia and dick meant in terms of what the kids were trying to understand. And the first one, the kids in, in, in life during wartime are trying to understand what terrorism means. They're trying to understand yep. what Judaism is. Um, and so uh, I, I think that life during wartime is not as funny and not as punchy as happiness. So I don't think it carries the same sort of amount of like entertainment value as a watch, but uh, I've watched it a, a number of times and I find it to be a more meaningful, uh, deep, film than happiness that might also just be because i'm a 9-11 kid right so like i, I think i find meaning that total way. 9-11 yeah. head yeah no but i yeah. you know but earlier you know chris was saying like Loose oh change why? baby <laughs> 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 sorry no it's okay you can't you can't melt 
fire can't melt steel beams, right? Like that's, right. Yeah, fuel can't melt <laughs> steel beams, man. Yeah. Right. That's what life during wartime is about. I just wish that you guys would do your own research. Honestly, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> We're just asking questions. We're just asking questions. No, but I, I think that life during wartime, uh, after seeing it, is a a perfect like coda to happiness. And I, you know, we were talking earlier, Chris, you mentioned that like, you know, why hasn't Salon's tackled some of these more topical like modern issues if he does i hope he does it with these same characters again because it feels like kind of ripe opportunity to to do that thing um i i watched it right after happiness i was like what the hell i love this movie let me check this other one out it's a tight 90 minutes it's it's definitely like a a more brisk watch um and the performances in it are fantastic as ricky said Completely different actors uh, playing different characters here. Alan, uh, played by the great Michael K. Williams, of all people. And he's not in much of the movie, but I think he has some of like the best moments, especially near the end of the film. Uh, Allison Janney now plays uh, Trish, mm-hmm. Bill's wife. She's fantastic in it. Uh, and best of all, I don't know how you feel about this, Ricky, but I she's in the movie for maybe like five minutes, but Ali Sheedy plays yeah. the Lara Flynn Boyle character, and she's <laughs> unbelievable. And it's nice to see her. She just like knocks down the park. Uh, she has a, yeah, she's great. And I don't think Lara Flynn Boyle could have done what Ali Sheedy does no. in, in that role because the character has kind of, has completely changed and become a, b- a bit more of a basket case. Mm-hmm. And Ali Sheedy handles that uh, a, a little bit better. Um, I love that film. I, it's also another one that's like, uh, it feels like very few people have really found the love for that one. So I, I hold on to it with a, a little more tightly than I think I do happiness yeah. because everybody sort of, a lot of people know happiness and mm-hmm. it's like a shocking fun movie and life during wartime. I don't think there's really anything that shocking in life during wartime, right? No, it's, it's a lot softer movie. I mean, there is a, a, some, you know, brutal, brutal moments in it. And also, you know, I will say as like, there's a narrative device in which uh, the actress who plays, uh, plays joy, Start seeing the ghost of Andy, the John Lovitz character, oh, yeah. now played by Paul, now played by Paul Rubens in the movie. Oh uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's really excellent. It's got this kind of like more ghostly quality to it, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just it's very haunted. It's got a pitch perfect ending. I don't want to spoil it here on the show for people who haven't seen it, uh, but yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Go watch it. It's excellent. I think it's on Criterion Channel right now and probably will be for a while. You you shared um, Ricky uh, an interview uh, with Todd on Conan back when um, Happiness had come out. And so glad you brought this up. I <laughs> I had such a good time watching that interview, and it also revealed to me before I had seen the movie. It, it sort of preempted the kind of humor that. Todd is so good at, which is like, he's, he sort of slips these punchlines in totally unassumingly. And you don't even really know their punchlines until you find yourself laughing. And then you're like, oh, he's funny. And I don't think anyone, any other late night host at the time could have handled him as graciously as Conan did, because I think they would have just treated him like, you know, Todd argues the that society treats a lot of his characters, which is thought he was a weirdo and sort of make fun of him and whatever. But Conan is 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 very kind and kind of like laughs a little bit at him, but also I think understands what he's doing and 
I just really appreciated seeing more of, of Todd, like talking and making jokes because I couldn't find very much of, of him on the internet. And when you shared that, I was, I was really pleased. Yeah. Don't you just love him? And he's I such do. a lovable. Yeah. But there's something very telling about that interview that, um, makes me feel like, at least on this watch, it made me feel like happiness is actually ahead of its time in its use of irony, which is mm -hmm. that, um, in that interview, Conan is like, why do you like this air supply song? Do you really like this air supply song? Aren't you making fun of your characters by using this air supply song? And it's such a telling aspect of the 90s where it was sort of like, air supply is bad. If you use air supply, you are, you know, making a joke about air supply or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like you can't be yeah. serious. Whereas I watch the movie now and it's a funny song, sure, but it's pretty beautiful that these two very isolated, lost, alienated people have found each other and are dancing together in the bar. And it's another moment where he is asking you, like, why do you think I'm making fun of this moment? Right. Is it because you normally don't see two people who look like this dancing in a bar in a movie or dancing in a movie? But this is the song that would be playing on the jukebox. This is a song that one of them might like. And that's OK. Right. Like yeah. th there's no reason to hate these people because they like a stupid song and who's it stupid to not yeah. to them. And so I, I, I love that interview because I love salons, but I think that's such a telling moment to be like, aren't you making fun of these people by using this corny song? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, they're just, don't you think they would just like that song that that's what would be playing while they danced and that they need to hold each other. Yep. Chris disagrees. I can tell by the look on his face. <laughs> No, I was going to say, Ricky, you can't just say that, like, you can't just, again, you can't just posit that you can completely remove yourself from the time and place that you exist in. I know that is the mission of people that are making art, but you can't just say, like, you live, you know, we, you know, we live in a society, right? Like, if Todd Salons is living in a world where everybody in the entire world thinks that this song is corny, it's in commercials and other movies and TV shows to signify that something corny is going on and that that he's using the movie completely devoid of any reference to that. I mean, it's, I don't it think, is a no, reference no. to that. No, no, no. I don't think, I don't, I don't, sorry. I don't think that he, I don't think that that's what he's doing. I think the way that he's ahead of his time is by saying that like, even though it may be corny in society or like hip people right. may deem it corny, it can have value and meaning for these other people. And like, why would, why would that, why is that bad? Or why, why am I insincere? Because I'm allowing them to have a moment to the no. song. That and, they and, might I, have a and I, to. and I do agree with this. I mean, this is the big thing that our previous guest on our podcast, Rax King has kind of like made her name by doing and got a James Beard nomination for writing about this. But the idea that like, what's so funny about Guy Fieri, like Guy Fieri seems like a, a sincere person who's doing his best to be mm -hmm. nice to people and highlight people he thinks are doing a good job who are small business people and he's just doing he's just doing his thing that he does and he enjoys doing it and like what just because like because hip people think it's stupid like that doesn't mean anything you know like yeah and and I do agree that 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 this is he's doing some things in all of his work that are causing us to because you know it's questioning like why do we all think the same things and why do we all you know, take the same signifiers mm -hmm. to mean the same things. And, and who is we anyway? And there's mm -hmm. a lot of people excluded from that. And they're also real people, even if you think they're corny or stupid or gross to look at or something. 
It yep. doesn't mean that they're not human beings with emotions and feelings that deserve to be taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it almost feels like our kind of like irony soaked culture of the now is not particularly primed to receive something like a Todd Salon's movie, right? Especially like when he's trying to evoke emotion and attitude out of things like I this. Mean, like I, I, maybe that's overly simplifying. No, but, I mean, I, I think you're very right. And this is the thing we haven't talked about yet is like, yes. like we would talk about it on our show, which is like, you could never in a million fucking years make a movie like this now because it doesn't, it doesn't like we're saying it doesn't tell you what to think about the characters in the correct way. It doesn't have the like, it doesn't have a correct point of view. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's just no way this movie would survive. And this is why this movie is memory hold. That's why you can't watch it anywhere. I think yeah. because who wants to put this movie on their streaming service? You know, yeah. no one that in the, the world. And the cursed, the cursed uh, Seagram Corporation. Uh, you know, God. they'll intoxicate the world over, but they will not release this movie. But I mean, well, I, I don't think we're capable of watching and talking about the movie Happiness this this in this current world that we're in. I, no, I really no. don't and think the, we're capable the, of it. The thing that's shitty about now is that we are not capable of doing that, but we posit that we are. Like, I feel like everyone now would like vehemently assert like, no, these are the stories we're telling now. These are the mainstream narratives that we're like, you know, putting forth in, in all of our sort of pop culture media. Like we, the, the weirdos have become like the norm and like we're championing them now. And that's like more noxious to me than, than like, you know, in 1998 when people were like, what the fuck is this or whatever. It's like, now we're like posturing that like, we we do tell complicated stories and we do talk about the marginalized and we do talk about the the nobodies you could not make a something where a pedophile was one of the main characters and was no absolutely not i i you know i just think that's impossible we have become Um, even more scandalized by like the the messiness of our world than we already were at the late stages of of the 20th century. Ricky, I want to hear what you're going to say because I feel like you thought you were going to agree with me and then you didn't. So like, I would love to hear. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, sorry. I was thinking about, um, I, I was thinking about the, the sort of the pedophile in our culture right now and what it has become and how it's become yeah. this kind of like, oh, yeah. like the, the movie okay. in 1998 is kind of responding to mass media portrayal of like the greatest fear in a suburban neighborhood. Right. Which is that right. the father next door is a killer or, or, or a pedophile. Whereas the pedophile now in our culture is whatever part political party or idea that you disagree with yep. <laughs> like it's so just like yes they're a pen, you know like uh, i jokingly said did you watch it on disney plus in tunnel vision because the whole idea now is that disney has fucking pedophile tunnels that they're running chill <laughs> which is in- it's insane <laughs> like yeah. so i i think the time is probably right to make a movie about a pedophile and to make a movie about uh, the the idea of what a pedophile is or who a pedophile is or what makes like whatever, how it's like how it's pervaded culture in a different way. It's like so it's abstracted. Politi- it's political it's so abstracted yeah. from the thing that it was. It's not about yeah. a person who wants to have sex with a child. It's got it's, it's political. Yeah, it's like a political cudgel. And there's it's not right. even about like like a guy who's a pedophile. It's like Matt Gatz saying that Disney has tunnels full of pedophiles. Like, what the fuck are we talking about? 
I yeah. think like uh, it's it's the galaxy brain thing of right like we can't really the most people don't want to confront like how simple the horrors of our society are and like there's there's not a lot of complexity to why things are bad if you just look at things you know logically but most people don't want to do that so there has to be this sort of like insane explanation for things that people just don't really want to confront or deal with anyway. And so it's easy, like you take this idea of like corporations being bad, which like there's a kernel of something there, but then it becomes so like abstracted and like, and you know, just. You can't uh, talk about the normal everyday, easy to comprehend ways that corporations are bad. You have to invent a nonsensical Exactly. You know, super evil right. way that they're bad. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, exactly. No, they're that. just bad because they're they're doing wage theft all the time. That's yeah. But know. I think, but I think you, but I think you're making a really good point that I think the the movie is talking about. And uh, be kind to me right now, and please cut this when it doesn't make sense <laughs> after after I say it because <laughs> I just thought of it, and it's going to take a lot of brain power to make this work. But this idea that like the the horrors. And the fears and happiness are like, what's going to affect my family? What's going to affect me, right? So I'm afraid of this pedophile, the possibility that someone in my neighborhood is a pedophile. And instead of caring that they might be sick or caring that the teacher is a junkie, I care how this affects me and ruins my life. It's very individualistic. So the real horrors at the heart of happiness are like the, the very American individualistic concern for themselves. And I think the same can kind of be applied to why someone would want to create a galaxy brain notion about a corporation versus what the real problem is with a corporation because wage theft with a corporation requires some sort of collectivism, some sort of idea as to how to work together mm -hmm. to combat that and change policy. Whereas creating some sort of noxious evil removes any sort of actual concern or change for others and solely focuses on how you feel and what you're scared of. Yep. Done. Landed yeah, the dismount. Landed, yeah. Landed it. Landed it. Nailed it, that Ricky. Makes Nailed perfect it. sense, Ricky. And I mean, you know, it goes back to that scene that I, I talked about in in the movie, in Happiness, when Joy like can only see her own individuated circumstances and experiences amidst this like labor mobilization these like workers striking <laughs> exactly. to try to like get benefits and then by the end of the movie she even has a line where she says i think i have more sympathy for the strikers now and it's only because she's been like you know used by this immigrant student by this russian guy right like she she has no actual understanding of the systemic abuses or the reasons why anyone might be striking she just realizes oh those people that i held in higher esteem than the workers uh did me wrong and so now i get it now i now i get that these people are just fucking me over i i think that's most that's mostly what she's saying but it's also that like oh those people that i held in higher esteem are also just people like right in yeah, the yeah. same way that the workers are are just people and can do can do bad things it kind mm -hmm. of goes back to what i think you said aaron which is that anytime someone tries to sort of like do the right thing they're confronted with the idea that like there isn't really a right thing and it's not like you can't pity anybody in the in this movie <laughs> yeah. yeah no completely and you know i i may end up cutting all of this but 
there is, you know, as you always. You cut everything I say, too. I just want to put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> as always, there happens to be, like, a conversation, you know, capital C, like, bigger one happening, like, online or in, you know, like, the discourse around movies that has to do with some of this stuff that we're talking about. You know, we say, like, we can't, uh, you know, we, we can't make a movie like this. Like, there's no, like, way that a, a movie like this would find any purchase. And I think we're right. Um for a lot of different reasons, but I don't know if you all have seen, there's been a conversation around the new Marvel movie around Dr. Strange where, you know, directed by the great Sam Raimi, I'm sure it's still just a Marvel movie. You know, no one survives that machine. Uh, but it's a little bit, you know, more out there, a little bit more violent than some of the other Marvel movies have been in the past. You know, someone like it's, I guess, cut in half and there's some, you know, kind of mild gore and you literally have like culture writers and, you know, people on the internet being like, this this movie should have been rated R, not PG thirteen. Like le- less people should be allowed to see this movie. This this is too scary for us. And I'm just like, after watching this movie and then today seeing this discourse where people are like, "Don't let me see the latest superhero movie. It's too scary." I was like, I was having a conniption. Like I, I just I couldn't fathom the difference there in terms of just like the the subject matter of the movies. Again, again though, I I actually don't think. That anybody feels that way about Doctor Strange. No. I think it's again talking about like the grooming in licorice pizza. They've found <laughs> they've no, yeah. they've found a news peg that right. they can attribute their feelings to because that's all that they know how to attribute their feelings yeah. to anymore, right? Oh yeah, I saw Doctor Strange. It should be rated R. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's I it think it's this that's your only thoughts on the movie uh, okay are you the fucking mpaa what the fuck do you care yeah i mean and this goes back to something we were talking about before which is like when regular people feel the need to like defend systems like the democratic party or like you know the like oh the mpaa didn't give the correct rating to this you're like what the fuck are you talking about why do you care about any of this this has right. like literally no impact on you yeah, was, when when I was in high school, the MPAA was like, we made fun of it. We were dying to see NC seventeen yes, movies. Like, absolutely. Was, yeah, yeah, like totally. make, we were like, how do you think? How do you think I know happiness by heart? It's because we were like, <laughs> yeah, this movie's like, I don't think I probably got it to the extent that I get it now when I was sixteen or seventeen. But I was like, yeah, this movie's fucked up. We gotta watch it all the time. <laughs> and and like in the age of streaming, when you have accessibility to all of this shit, this constant churn of media, you know, designed for various age ranges. Like, when was the last time you honestly checked? what the fuck something was rated. I don't, I, I, I haven't in ages. Like it just doesn't, I turned 17 and then I was like, okay, what, who gives a fuck? Like I brought up licorice pizza earlier, but like, I remember when it was out and like when it had just come out and I asked a friend of mine if she had seen it yet. I was like, Oh, have you seen licorice pizza yet? And she went, no, you know, the whole grooming thing. And I thought to myself, like, why doesn't that make you want to see it more? Right. Yeah. I was like, like, what I was the like, fuck is this about? Yeah, like, 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 what do you mean? Like, you heard that there was something potentially disturbing about this movie that like explored sexuality in a way that hasn't been on screen, and like, you're not interested in seeing what that's about. Like, no. you're just gonna, you're just gonna stand back and like say it exists and have nothing. Like, I'm all in. Like, <laughs> all tell in. me, tell me that something's disturbing. Tell me that something is like, you know, explore something in a new way or is like, you know, touching third rails. I'm fucking, I want to know. Yeah. I want to, I want, I want to see it. I want to talk about it. I don't want to like 
I'm not going to hide at home and wonder if maybe, maybe they shouldn't have made that. Who the fuck? Like you're like a, this was like a 34 year old person living in the city who, who was in like, what? I was, I was shocked. I was but just this like, is, I think it is a byproduct of this feeling we have now that like, there is so much stuff that it's like, and there's so many people on social media and that you just, there's this mode now where people want to be like, well, that shouldn't exist. Like, that's bad. <laughs> like, actually, there's too much stuff and this stuff is bad and I don't think it should be allowed to exist. And, and and that's, for some people, that feels like necessary work that has to happen. And I understand it to a certain degree, but it it is also, like, completely fucking wild that you as a person would choose to live your life that way. To bring it back to happiness, I... I shudder to do this even a little bit because it feels like commodifying pieces of it but i i do want to ask a little bit about the movie for for each person their perspective here like god forbid we make movies into sports but i am curious like in an ensemble piece like this uh what everyone's favorite like plot line is what everyone's favorite Mm -hmm. character is in the movie I I am curious to know which one resonated with with everyone the most. Everyone's afraid <laughs> well, now to say the pedophile. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say which one resonated with me the most. Yeah, that's let's maybe yeah. change the question a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Wh- which one did you find the most uh, interesting? Compelling. I mean, it's compelling the, pe- I, the to me it was the pedophile plot. I, I, I think so I think too. I agree. That's the most unusual to see on film. It's the most sympathetically rendered. It's funny. It's sad. It's gross and it's just like completely unlike anything else you've seen. Uh, yeah, I would I would agree, save for the fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this movie. Yeah, and true. like we just we don't have any more Philip Seymour Hoffman outside of what he made, and he's so one in, once in a generation compelling. Every little quirk and tick and thing he does is calculated and amazing, and you're on the edge of your seat watching it. That said, I do think the best scene in the movie, which we haven't actually talked about, is when Dylan Baker um, tries to tell Trit, his wife, that he's sick. And she tells him to uh, take some Tylenol and he'll feel better in the morning. Mm. But um, <laughs> yes. it's it's in terms of performance, as much as I love Hoffman, I think the best performed scene in the movie is Philip or uh, Dylan Baker mm-hmm. um, in that in, in that scene. It's just He's so incredible. He's so moving and heartbreaking in 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 that moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I go Phil Hoffman. And the way his character is committed to being honest too, while being a yes. pedophile, is yes. so interesting. It's yes. so interesting. Well, it's, it's compelling, and like it's the one thing you know, like that I kept feeling throughout. Where, I mean, you're feeling sickened. You like you want him to get caught almost as badly as he does. It kind of seems like you know, but the one element of the movie where I was like, Oh, I still find him sympathetic. I still find him, you know, like I, I find myself kind of like hoping the best for him is like, he's not a bad father. Like in the movie, like he has mm-hmm. like honest conversations with his son, like too honest by the end of it, you know, they kind of play it for, you know, a kind of brutal punchline, but he he's having well, every, like good conversations. Every one of those com- kids. 
every one of those conversations has a brutal punchline. Yes, every single one. He's a great father until the end of every one of those (laughs) conversations. Yes. When he's like, do you want me to measure your penis? He's like, do you want me to show (laughs) you? Do you want me to show you how to play with your penis? And he's like, I'm good. No, thanks, dad. (laughs) No, the kid is so innocent. He goes, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm 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 good. I'm I'm good, dad. I'm good. Um, but I think, I think Dylan Baker, uh, you know, for as great as everyone is in the movie, I think he does give the best performance and it's, yeah, I I think it plays to his sensibilities as a performer and actor, like perfectly as well. It's like a kind of once in a lifetime character. I have one like totally childish question since I'm talking to a panel of men. (laughs) Is this like. Like, do you have this conversation with your father where you're like, no, what are you no, out of your mind? No. Never in a million <laughs> years. No. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to hear the, com- the birds and the bees conversation that I had with my dad? Please. Um, he had rightfully assumed that I already knew what I knew because all my friends in the neighborhood were much older than me growing up. Right. <laughs> they were all like all the boys in the neighborhood were like 13 while I was like seven. So like they were already like, you know, when I shouldn't, whatever. So I decided to test the water on, we were driving in his truck and I was like, dad, you've never really told me about the birds and the bees. Like you never really told me about this. And he went, I'm like, come on, Rick, you fucking know. (laughs) That was it. I love that. That That's very cinematic. For for those not watching at home, uh, while while Ricky said, you fucking know, he put uh, his index finger through a circle (laughs) he made with his thumb and his index finger uh, to simulate. I was like, is this, like do do boys have this conversation with their father like what no. is this a thing and was, i certainly do not give the play by play i don't give the play by play about no. you know how how close i get to coming on any given day no for sure i also and found it way easier when i finally figured out what that part of my body did than this young man than than little was, billy did he was very confounded by it he was yeah confused. he had a lot of he had a lot of trouble i think you can see who the movie hates the most by who ends up kissing the dog with the mouth full of cum. Yeah. <laughs> Trish. It's Trish. Yeah. It's Trish. Yeah. Trish yeah. is the villain of the movie. Yeah. She for Trish, sure this is. This movie loathes, I think, Trish and Lara Flynn Boyle's characters. Well, they're yeah. so diluted. At least the other characters kind of like to themselves will admit they're kind of like immiseration and and their, their follies. The two of them are so deep in their own fantasy worlds that they like are unwilling to like waver on this perception they have of themselves as totally whole people. You know, a fantastic scene is when the two of them have lunch and (laughs) their worlds, (laughs) their sort of like veneers, the, the, the pantomiming of their lives comes crashing against one another. And like, it's, it's a brilliantly implosive scene. They're so shallow and mean to each other, right? In yes. their own little way. Just one-upping each other. and Exactly, yeah. 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 They're constantly status-bumping each other. Like, yeah, one-upping each other. Right. Yeah. The only it's thing great. that they share with one another is, like, the ability to, like, pity their other sister, to pity Joy, <laughs> and, yes. like, exclude her from things. <laughs> yes. It would be interesting, though, to have this point of view about yourself, right? To think that, like you actually literally had everything figured out and you were great and everything you were doing was successful. Like that would be really interesting. It would be really interesting to be like that. You know, <laughs> don't you feel like, a, don't you feel like a lot of people feel that way? Or yes. Like, yes. I feel like a lot of people, like maybe even most people feel that yeah, way. Yeah, totally. And, and I'm like horrified by that idea. 
but I think it's true. <laughs> and I think like, that's what, that's honestly what, I mean, there are a lot of things about living in today that feel alienating, but that's one of the things that really alienates me is I'm just like, you have to be at a, you have to be at like, just like universal levels of delusion to be yes. thinking that things are good and that you're good and that we're all good. Just still. to be like posting on social media every day about like, you know, how great your life is going. Like you just have to be completely fucking on a fucking spaceship away from reality. Like you every really second do. of the day. Chris, we talk about this all the time and how much more successful in life yeah. we would be if we could just be like slightly more deluded. Yeah, just like, <laughs> like have if a I little bit less situational <laughs> awareness. I would be like, like way if, more successful. Yeah. If I if if I could sit in office meetings and not think in my head, what the fuck? Oh like, my what god. What are we doing? So fucking pointless. <laughs> who gives doing, a shit wait, about who, any of this? Who, like why would we do that? Sounds like the worst idea. Oh, okay. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Like and who's then there's gonna like fucking care about this? Nobody cares yeah. about Nobody this. Cares. Talking about this. <laughs> but oh there's my like god. one but there's one guy in the room who's like, This is a great idea, Tom. I cannot <laughs> fucking wait. This is gonna this is gonna blow the doors off the internet. You're gonna see this is gonna be wild. And you're just thinking to yourself, like, God, I wish I could be a little more like him. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Carly, what who's your favorite person? What's what's your what's the, the oh, thing that resonates the most with you? I didn't I'm sorry, realize not, I didn't answer that question. Which which one compels you the most? Uh the Cameron, I called her Catherine earlier. Um, the Cameron Mannheim sequence mm -hmm. in the diner with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I just love yeah. it. I loved it. I thought she acted beautifully in that. Um, and I really, really appreciated the moments of humor um, that came from the other side of the table with mm -hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman, just sort of like, uh, check, please. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she's in the middle. She's like, just started getting just into it. Just started. And she orders the Sunday, and he's like, uh, check. It's it's then, really good. I don't I don't think we've I don't think we've mentioned it, but the end of their no maybe maybe we did the end of their story for the most part, with the exception of the exposition at the end of the movie that they tell what happened to her is that he gets into bed with her yeah. and they it's like a they, happy they ending to, kind of for yeah, the two so of they them. Yeah, they go to right? sleep next to each other, set to the air supply song. Right. Yes, and Facing it's happy sad because they and... both they both are like I'm not we're not. I'm not, I don't want to see you or feel you. I just want to be here. Let's face outward. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a perfect kind of like, um, it sums up a lot of the, the, the things we've been talking about, which is that like, there are all these moments in our lives where many complicated feelings exist at once. And that like scene closing on the bed with them in the bed turned away from each other is a beautiful example of that. Agreed. Mm. Well, it's been a, a fruitful conversation full of insights and wonder, uh, but it has been a rather long one. So I think this is as good a place as any <laughs> to wrap things up today and thank our guests uh, again one more time, Ricky Camilleri and Chris Chafin from 30 Years Later. Thank you so much, Thanks, gents. Guys. Thank you. Thank it's you. Such a pleasure having you. We, we had a great time on your program too. Tell us a little bit about the the podcast and where people can find it. Uh, 
It's called 30 Years Later. You can find it wherever podcasts are available. Um, it stars myself, Ricky Camilleri, and my co-host, Chris Chafin. And every week, or about every other week, we talk about a movie that came out 30 years ago that week. So often we're talking about movies from the 90s, and you know we try to choose a diversity of movies. But oftentimes, um, especially recently, we find that we're just choosing movies that we like. What do you say, Chris? Hey, well, it's really interesting, Ricky, because a lot of, I like to say we're the anti-nostalgia nostalgia podcast because a lot of times there are movies like shows like this where they talk about you know just the best movies you remember from your childhood and they just kind of jack each other off about how great they are whereas we like to both pick challenging movies and also movies that remind us like maybe some things have changed for the better in society and in filmmaking (laughs) you know since the 1990s and some movies were best left to be forgotten but we're trying we're remembering them yeah Uh, although i will say they kind of Ricky kind of had his spirit broken by watching the movie Cuffs, so we've been doing better movies <laughs> lately. So <laughs> uh, we've been we've been doing every two weeks just so we can try to pick movies that we actually care about and want to watch. There you go. I think there was like I think there was like three movies in a row that were yeah, so there was fucking a lot of bad, really unbearable, bad. and felt like. I'm 38. I don't need to be spending two hours watching this. What yeah, am I doing? Yeah, I, yeah, I listened yeah. to a handful of y'all's episodes and one was on the Adams family. And Ricky, you said that verbatim. You were like, <laughs> I don't know if I can keep doing the 30 years later thing because like, why else would I be fucking watching the Adams family movie? Like, I can't do this with my spare time right now. <laughs> I feel like which, you, which, you mentioned that at least movie, once. Which is a movie I like. Yeah. So imagine how it feels when I watch a movie that I don't like. Yeah, yeah. And I have it's a child. Do you know what I mean? Like my yeah, time yeah. is very spoken for. That's you know? right. You you have a child and a and an actual full time job. I know. Oh. For God's sake, yeah. you know. I'm just, dick, I'm just dicking around. I do pottery. Here. Like I'm busy. You know. Like. <laughs> well, we are very very thankful to you then that you all took the opportunity, took the time out of your busy schedules. To come on the Please. show, talk about a, a, a film that's from the the back half of the '90s, from a, a period of time that you won't get to for another six years on your own show. <laughs> so um, <laughs> just six more years of doing the podcast <laughs> until you get to this okay. one. Uh, I kind of feel like I kind of feel like we all started podcasts during the pandemic because subconsciously we all recognize that like everything's coming to an end and yeah. there won't be any more like documentation of our lives online after a certain point because everything will blow up. And so we're all comfortable just kind of going for it now and recording everything and posting it. Because <laughs> yeah. in like five years when the nukes hit yeah. as a real pandemic, there right. will be like this, this, we won't be alive for the archive yeah, yep. absolutely. for anyone to, to retrieve it. About the I, guys, I, uh, I want to say thank you so much for having yes, us and you. for, embracing um talking about a pretty sticky movie yeah. that i think some people mm, so very uh, sticky, even, yeah. even 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 <laughs> very sticky that i think even even brave cinema goers would shy away from 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 watching um i think they'd be wrong to do that but who knows what sort of past lives uh they had that would cause them to be afraid of this film <laughs> You were like, you were just Fair going enough. down the field, you're doing great, and then you just like broke both your legs. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we have nothing but f- brave cinema goers who listen to our show. They're, they're not many, but they are mighty. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they're listening to our, our podcast or yours, I'm, I'm certain that they are not ones that lean into uh, some of the more, I don't even know, I call them brain dead. 
persuasions of, of movie going of, of the now and, and, you know, uh, no, we don't have those kind of people listening. If they are listening, sorry in advance for watching happiness. My if mom they are listening, tell taste. your friends because we need more listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Always. I feel like, uh, and if you do listen to this and you haven't seen happiness, Ow. find me on Twitter. I will DM you a Dropbox link to the movie. There we yeah. go. Because people should see the movie and there's really no fucking way to watch this movie. It's very, very very hard to get a hold of, but we will make sure to link to both you, Chris, and and you, Ricky, uh, in the episode description so that you can get bombarded with DM requests (laughs) uh, for people to to find this digital copy. I I doubt anybody will do it. Uh, Ricky's very pretty. I think he's bombarded with DM requests every day anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, As always, you can uh, follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can also subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bi-weekly bonus episodes and other content. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone. It seems the things I've wanted in my life I've never had. So it's no surprise that living only leaves me sad. Happiness where I Yeah.